Let's ask for God's help. Lord, that is what we want to do right now. We want to ask for your help. We believe that this is your word, that it is supernatural, that it is alive, that it is not just something we examine, but that it examines us and lays us bare before you. And so, Lord, as we, as we come to this part of your word, we want to invite you to search us, O oh God, and to know us, to see if there's any offensive way in us and to lead us in the path everlasting. And would you use your word to do that? Father, would you help us not to run and hide from the illuminating gaze of your holy eye, but would we come and step into the light and to meet you here? Father, I pray that in this part of your word, we would see your glory and we would rejoice and we would be shaped to reflect that glory to a world that is watching, to an invisible world that is watching and to you for your pleasure because we love you Lord these are big things for us these are impossible things for us but you know they're not for you and so we're trusting and we're leaning on your power here oh God and we ask this for Jesus sake amen you can have a seat the walk of faith is seldom in a straight line, isn't it? As we walk with the Lord and follow his direction, don't we often end up in places that we never, ever would have guessed? How, how many of you right now are exactly where you thought you would be five years ago? And I don't just mean like in this chair, but like just where you are in life. How many of you are where you thought you'd be five years ago. What about one year ago? How, how many of you have, maybe even recently, had an experience where you're, you're sort of living out this experience and in the back of your head you're thinking, how in the world did this happen? How, how did I get here right now? I wonder how many times Ab- Abram thought that to himself. He obeyed God's call to Canaan and that set in motion a, a series of events that, that Abram never would have been able to guess or expect. I, I wonder if, if there, how many points he wondered, how did I get here? I wonder if one of those points was, was that night as he surveyed the camp of the Eastern Coalition, all illuminated by firelight, as he lifted high his sword or his spear and gave the order to his men to attack. I wonder if he asked himself, how did I, how did I end up here? Well, we're getting ahead of ourselves because maybe you're wondering the same thing. Maybe you're even wondering, what are you talking about? How did Abram end up there and why does it matter? And the answer to that starts all the way back at the beginning of chapter 14 of Genesis that as we're working through it. And uh, one of the things that's pretty clear, um, so we didn't read those first 11 or so verses of chapter 14 together out loud. Um, that was a mercy to you because they're full of place names and king's names that are uh, quite a mouthful. Uh, and, and what's interesting is the, these these first verses, they, they read quite differently than some of the other material in Genesis, uh, they, they have the feel of, of an ancient official military annal uh, of, of, of recounting history and events. And so 
perhaps there actually was one of these annals that was used as, as one of the sources as, as the book of Genesis was written. And uh, if you just read through them, it's a little bit tough to figure out. But if you s- slow down and study and look at them up in maps and use some tools, um, you can kind of see. So let me try and sum up what was happening. So um, there were four kings from Abram's old stomping grounds. So remember how there's kind of this big crescent, the fertile crescent. You've got the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers over here and this big crescent that goes up north to Aram and then down through the promised land and then it kind of keeps going and, and, and gets into Egypt. So over on the far side of this fertile crescent is, is the land between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers called Mesopotamia and, and all kind of around there there's these four kings and, and one of, the, so they had an alliance and, and at the head of this alliance was a king named Keterlaomer and and these kings were ruling over five kings in Canaan, which and of those five kings in Canaan, two of them were Sodom and Gomorrah. Cue the scary music. And and these five kings were, were serving this alliance of four kings, primarily Kedolarmer, and, and, and serving them probably meant that once a year <clears throat> They sent them a tribute uh, <clears throat> of money or livestock or salt or something like that. And after 12 years of this arrangement, they decided they were done and they broke off their contract and they stopped serving him, which likely meant, you know, he didn't get his he didn't get his check in the mail that year from them. So in response, Kettle decided to uh, fix things the way that much of the world has fixed things for much of its history. Let's go to war. And so he rounded up his allies, which were these four kings. One of them included the king of Shinar. That's actually, you know, uh, right there in, the, in verse 1. Uh, Shinar, Babylon. Okay, that's, that's, that's right where Abram was from. They round up these four kings, and they go on a rampage. Okay, this was not a strategic strike. If you read through the chapter, you see what they did is they got to, to the land of Canaan, and on the, on the far side of the Jordan, they basically just mowed down the far side of the Jordan, conquering everybody who stood in their path, uh, including, it talks about them defeating Rephaites, which is likely a reference to some, some group of, of uh, Rephaim, some, some group of giants uh, connected probably to the Nephilim. And, and, and so nobody is standing in their path. They go all the way down to the northern tip of the Red Sea. The, the, there's those two gulfs that come off the Red Sea. They go right down to there, and then they come up the other side and are just destroying people in their paths as they come up, the Amalekites and, and Amorites and everybody. And then after this, you know, this, uh, this, this uh, trip of destruction, they get to the five cities that they actually are, are coming for. And that's when we get to the battle in verses 8 to 12. And we kind of, at this point, seeing what these four kings have done, we kind of don't wonder too hard. I wonder how this battle is going to go. No one's been able to stand in their path. And so it's very interesting uh, that, so verse 8 tells us that the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other kings went out and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim. So they, they, they go out, they don't wait to be attacked, they go into the open plain. And it's just so interesting. Verse 10 says, as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, because of course they're going to flee, right? Of course they get defeated because how uh, undefeatable these guys have been. Now, verse 10 tells us the valley where they're fighting was full of pits of bitumen, which is uh, uh, like tar. It's, uh, today it's produced as a byproduct of, of oil refinery. 
And, and, and it says that as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them. So people are, as they're running, because of course they're running, some are like falling into these tar pits, which sounds like a pretty horrible way to die. Um, I've, I've heard of lots of construction accidents involving tar, which I will spare you from this morning. And then it says, verse 10, the rest fled to the hill country. So, uh, so this is just giving us a picture of a total bloodbath, total chaos. These four unstoppable kings just mowing down everybody in their path like a, like a big lawnmower of armies. And verse 11 says, so the enemy... That's these four eastern kings. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. So not only did they beat them, but then they stopped by their house and took all their stuff. That's kind of the kind of the picture here. So imagine, you know, some guy beats you up and then you go home and your house is empty. That's kind of the experience that they had here. And so everything is gone. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, this, this sounds kind of interesting, but why does this matter? What's, what's the relevance for the story? Well, verse 12, here's the punchline. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Okay, that's, that's where this all ties into our story. Good old Lot. Last week we heard how Lot headed off in the direction of Sodom, living in a tent outside of Sodom. Well, here we find that he's actually living right inside the city. He's, he's moving up in the world, but he didn't read the fine print. You know, when he moved into the city, he did, I'm guessing he didn't know, you know, no one met him at the door and said, FYI, we're serving a king from across the river, but we're going to rebel against him this year and there might be a world war. Okay. I, my, my guess is Lot probably thought he was safe and secure inside this walled city. And all of a sudden he's a prisoner of war. He's a captive. He's probably going to become a slave and he's getting hauled all the way back to close to the land of his birth. And all of his riches, all his possessions now are the property of, of these marauding kings. So uh, things have not gone well for Lot. And this is kind of one of the things that we were looking forward or, or, or pointing forward to last week is that by choosing the best land for himself, uh, he made a really bad decision. And, and just, you know, it goes downhill even f- from here. But let's get to our, our second major step in the passage. We've looked at the First World War. By the way, this, this is the first war mentioned in the Bible. It's likely not the first war that ever happened, but this is the first war mentioned in the Bible. Now we get to Abram's attack in verses 13 to 16. Verse 13 tells us someone escaped the battle, and, and maybe it's likely that Lot sent them with a message. And so they come and they find Abram, who is still living, by the oaks of Mamre. He, he, he dwelt there for quite some time. We find him there again several chapters later. But we find out here again, Mamre was, was, was a man. Mamre was brother of Eskol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. So these are three brothers, probably prominent uh, men in the Amorite community. We find out later they're, they're Amorites. And, uh, or actually, so we find out, find out here. And and uh, Abram had made an, made an alliance with them, made a covenant with them. So later on, Israel was told not to make covenants or alliances with the people in, in the, the, the land. But God had not given any instructions to Abram about that at this point. So he's made an alliance with them. 
And we find out at the end of the chapter, so Hebrew narrative does this a lot. It'll kind of tell us a bunch of stuff and then share like the really important detail at the end. We find out at the end of the chapter that these three guys and probably a fighting force actually went with Abram on this attack. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's look at verse 14. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he... How are we going to finish the sentence? He said, ha ha, Lot, too bad for you. Shouldn't have been so quick to take the best land for yourself. Hope you learned your lesson. You made your bed. Now it's time to sleep in it. You know, whatever line you want to put in there. No, that's not what Abram says. Instead, when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So here we learn how, just how big Abram had, had grown. So Abram would have had a lot of servants, or let's, let's just use the word slaves. Okay? Now, now right, when we think of slavery, we, we think of, of, of the slavery that was practiced in the United States before the Civil War. And, and no doubt some of the slavery in the ancient world was like that, but certainly not all of it. These would have been people that that was their life. They were born in Abram's household and they served him and that's just, that was just their life. And of the people born to the people in his household, he had raised up a fighting force of 318 men. That, that's, that's pretty good to have a personal, a personal fighting force, your own little mini army. And actually maybe not all that mini for the standards of the day. And so Abram leads this personal trained fighting force and he leads them. He himself goes um, and he fights, he pursues them uh, all, all the way as far as Dan, which is way in the north. Now, what, what Abram does here is really important on three levels, okay? Three, three, three really important levels here. First, notice that Abram rushes to defend Lot. He leaves his own horde unguarded, okay? No one's protecting, like, because he's taken his soldiers with him. So no one's protecting his own household and all of his stuff, he puts himself in danger, even after everything Lot did to him in the last chapter. Now, we're going to come back to this lesson at the end, because it's so big and it's so important, what we see here about the heart of, of Abram and the heart of faith and the heart of love. Second, what Abram does here tells us something about a biblical theology of war, a biblical theology of force, even a biblical theology of violence. Abram has an army and a fighting force. Abram does not use that army, that fighting force, to be aggressive and to conquer land for himself. Okay, so he doesn't use this fighting force just to do whatever he wants. But neither is Abram completely passive. When, when, bad, when Lot gets taken captive, he doesn't just sit back and let it happen. Rather, what we see here is Abram using force to protect and defend and recover. So see, it's between these two extremes of being aggressive and being passive, and the middle isn't being passive-aggressive. Rather, the middle is, is, is using force to protect, defend, and recover. And that, that's an important category in the Bible's theology of, of force and, and of war. The third aspect we need to notice is that Abram, like, what's he acting like here? He's acting like a king, right? He's, he's acting like the king of a small nation, going out to take on these other kings. He doesn't think, oh, they're kings, I, I can't do anything. No, he's, he's functioning essentially like a king and, and like a leader of a great nation. So suddenly God's promise to make Abram into a great nation 
it doesn't seem so far-fetched anymore, does it? When we see Abram acting on the international uh, affairs playing field like this. Now, we haven't even gotten to the battle itself, verse 15, which is where we hear about Abram, and, and he uses two important battle tactics. First, he divides his forces so that the enemies have to split up to defend themselves. It's a really, it's a, it's a tried and true battle tactic. You don't just come in one spot. You, you make your enemy have to split up. And second, he attacks at night when he's got the element of surprise, and the, the darkness would have brought a lot of confusion. Uh, and, and if you think of the element of surprise, like Keto Larmer and his buddies, they had no idea what was coming. I mean, they had just wiped out everybody in their path. They, they were probably feeling invincible. They probably had a massive camp full of the plunder of all of these nations. They probably didn't have near enough guys to actually effectively guard and protect all of this loot. And, and they, they were probably uh, not being very vigilant. Now, we don't know that for sure. We're just sort of guessing. But here's what we do know. They attack at night, and Abram and his allies, verse 15, defeated them and pursued them to Haba, north of Damascus. So in other words, they chased them right out of the promised land. Uh, they don't try to annihilate them. They don't, they don't keep going to wipe them out. That, that wasn't the goal of this mission. The goal of this mission was to get Lot back. And sure enough, verse 16, he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Notice how the, the, the text here, the way it's written, it doesn't sensationalize anything. Here's what I mean. Like it doesn't. It doesn't say you know when Abram stood up tall and the firelight reflected in his eyes and he like you know and he shouted loud. Like it doesn't. It doesn't try to make him sound like this like mythic hero. It just tells us what happened. That's actually really important. We're going to find out why in just a few minutes. But next we get to the third major stop in our passage, which is the victor's reception. Verse seventeen tells us it opens after his return from the defeat of Kettle Armor. Now again, just notice how that's written. Like, yeah, you know, after he defeated the unstoppable king, no, no big deal. After the de- his return from the defeat of Kettle Armor and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley. And Abram gets a victor's reception, right? He comes home and he gets the reception of of a victor. First, the king of Sodom, the defeated king of Sodom, the king who just got a, a real shellacking by Chedorlaomer, he comes out to Abram, and Abram has all his stuff. That's interesting, isn't it? What's, what's he going to say? What, what, what kind of conversation are they going to have? Well, we're going to have to wait to find out. Because this account gets interrupted with another king who comes out to meet Abram. And so that's actually where we go first. Point A here to the king of Salem. Now we know right away that this king of Salem is totally different than the king of Sodom. And one of the ways we know that is that he completely interrupts what happened with the king of Sodom. And like we know kind of that works in real life. Like if if you were talking to uh, Scott Moe, the premier of Saskatchewan and King Charles walked up 
you'd probably pause your conversation with Scott Moe to acknowledge King Charles, right? So that's that sort of the feeling of what's what's going on here is there's the King of Sodom, but oh, now this and sorry, Sodom, you can you can wait. That's how that's how that's written here. Beyond that, there's there's four main aspects to Melchizedek that the text draws out that we want to notice. First is his feast. Okay, I've just used his name, Melchizedek, king of Salem. Okay. His feast, verse 18. Notice the king of Sodom just went out, but the king of Salem brought out bread and wine. Now, as Christians, especially we just celebrated the Lord's Supper this morning, when we hear bread and wine, we think, we think uh, a liturgical meal like the Lord's Supper. Okay? That's not how the original people would have read this. Bread and wine is just like talking about a meal. That's like... Like, like a full meal, uh, a, a good meal, the kind of thing that kings would, would normally eat at, at, at this kind of point. And so the idea here is that the king of Salem is taking on the role of a, of a benefactor. He's coming out to bless and to provide for Abram. Just telling us something about who he is. Number two, his identity. Again, verse 18. Salem is a city, and it's most likely an early name for Jerusalem. If you think of even how it's written, Jerusalem. Okay? Same city. Jerusalem is actually referred to as Salem later on in one of the prophets. The king's name is Melchizedek, which means something like the king of righteousness. But the most interesting nugget about Melchizedek's identity is at the end of verse 18, which says, just kind of by the way, he was a priest of God Most High. Not just a king, but a priest, and not just a priest, but a priest of God. And you might say, like, wow, where'd that come from? Like, how in the world, in the middle of pagan Canaan, do you have this priest of God just show up? And so we should remember it's it's only been ten generations since the flood. Now that's that's a lot of time for pagan religions to spring up. That's a lot of time for idol worship and moon worship and sun and star worship to spring up. But apparently there's still a remnant of genuine worship of the one true God that's still around. And Melchizedek seems to represent maybe the tail end of this thread of genuine worship that survived all the way from the flood. See, see, people who, people who don't believe the Bible, when they study this passage, they go, oh, Melchizedek was probably a pagan priest because they, they think all religion started in paganism and that the religion of Israel sort of developed out of paganism. Okay? But if we actually track with the story of the Bible and believe it, we, we see, no, it's actually the opposite. All true religion actually started with the knowledge of God that, Ab- that, that Adam had and that Noah had, and paganism deviated from that and perverted that. That's the point of Romans 1, if you want to read more about that. But apparently not everything deviated, not everything turned aside. There was a, a thread here of genuine worship that Melchizedek represents, and he's a priest of God. Third aspect of Melchizedek is his blessing. Now, here's what's important. 
a blessing typically, now not all the time, especially among the people of God today, it's, it's, it's different, but, but at this point in history, a blessing was typically made from someone who had spiritual seniority. Uh, Hebrews 7, 7 says this, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by his superior. Okay, so that's, that's just, and so Melchizedek, acting in the role of a priest, acts as a spiritual superior when in verses 19 to 20, he blesses Abram. So again, like by this point, like Abram's like a pretty important guy to us, right? And all, all to know where comes Melchizedek, priest of God most high, and he is showing he's superior. He's, he's in a, a place of, of, of superiority to Abram when he says, blessed be Abram by God most high. This is verse 19. Possessor of heaven and earth. Uh, some translations here say creator, but this word is, is better translated and better understood, not just as creator, but possessor, the one who's in charge and the one who owns it. Possessor of heaven and earth and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So again, he's not saying Abram is the possessor of heaven and earth, rather God most high is. And it's God who delivered Abram's enemies into Abram's hand. See, this this, this is just so important here. So few things. This is the first time we see someone bless Abram. Remember God said, who blesses you, I will bless. Well, here's someone blessing Abram. And, and, and it's also an expression of worship. Melchizedek here is interpreting the events of Abram's victory over these kings. And we find out here, this is why Abram's victory over these eastern kings were written in just such a straightforward way. Because it wasn't actually about Abram. God, possessor of heaven and earth, who everything is his, God decided to deliver those kings into Abram's hand. And so God deserves the credit and the glory, which is what's happening here through Melchizedek's mouth. See, this is why Abram isn't sensationalized as some kind of military hero. He's just a servant of the one who owns the universe. God is the main character in this story. God's the main character in every story. God decided how the battle would pan out. And Melchizedek is making sure that Abram doesn't miss that. Now, four, we see his tribute. Here's where things get really interesting. The last part of verse 20 tells us, just again, kind of in a by-the-way form, that Abram gave him a tenth of everything. To understand this a little bit more, it's helpful to think about the practice that, that kings often practice of giving a tribute to a king who is greater than them. You'd give someone a portion as a gift, as an acknowledgement of, of, uh, of their role. And Abram's, here to, Abram's gift to Melchizedek is an acknowledgement, once again, that Melchizedek is his superior in some regard. Uh, Hebrews 7, 4 says, See how great this man was to whom Abram the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. Or I think that the NIV translation here is actually, actually gets a little closer when it says, just speaking about Melchizedek, Hebrews 7, 4, just think how great he was, even the patriarch Abram gave him a tenth of the plunder. Okay, so that's kind of the idea here is Abram giving Melchizedek this tenth is like, wow, Melchizedek, okay? Now Abram's also acknowledging that the words of Melchizedek's blessing were true. Yeah, it was God who gave him the victory. It, it is God who gets the credit and the glory. And so he gives him a tenth. 
This is the first time in the Bible that we see the principle of a tithe or a tenth. In the kingdom of Israel, people were to give a tenth of their produce every year to support the priests and the Levites. Some have said that the, the tithe was in Israel was essentially like their income tax. Now, the New Testament does not teach Christians to tithe. We're not under the old covenant or under that old covenant law, but, but many Christians find that giving 10% is a really uh, great place to start for practicing a life of generosity. And that principle of a tenth runs all the way back through the Bible, all the way back here to these two ancient men in this King's Valley as Abram gives a tenth of everything to Melchizedek. Now, in all of this, Melchizedek is, is still shrouded in mystery, hey? Where did he come from? Where does he go? We don't have answers to those questions. But as we can see his feast, his identity, his blessing, and his tribute, we can't help but notice that he was a great man, in some respects, greater than Abram. And his words are a strong confirmation to Abram and to anybody else who is listening that Abram very did, did have a very important place in the unfolding plan of God. And we don't get to linger too long with the king of Salem because the king of Sodom is waiting in the wings, and in verse 21, he butts back into the conversation. Now, again, we don't know if he actually did that, but that's the way it's written. That's the effect. And we see here, he first of all, he makes an offer, his offer made in verse 21. Now, just think, just, just contrast here. Everything we've just heard of, of Melchizedek, king of Salem. Now, compare that to verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. That's kind of different, hey? Like, it's rude. This is just rude. He doesn't even say thank you. Thank you, Abram, for risking your life to go fight a battle that I couldn't to bring back my stuff. Like, wow. Like, you just... D- d- just Keep, keep the goods, but give me the people. Okay, like this, this, this is pretty disrespectful. Here's what's more important, though. The king of Sodom is showing that he has no clue about his proper place. He is acting as if he gets to call the shots, right? By saying, you can keep the stuff, but give me the people. He's acting like he's in charge. He gets to call the shots here. And here's the thing. He doesn't. He, he lost that right. He got defeated and plundered by Ketolarmer, fair and square. Abram defeated Ketolarmer and took his stuff, fair and square. The stuff, the plunder, the spoils, now belongs to Abram, fair and square. Abram, not the king of Sodom, is the guy who should get to call the shots now. Right? Abram, it's up to him to say, you can have your stuff back or finders keepers. This is mine now. I mean, that's how, that's how things went. But the king of Sodom doesn't get that. He doesn't know his place. He's, he's delusional. He thinks he's still in charge. He thinks he's still Abram's superior. He thinks he can tell Abram what to do. And so now Abram's in a tough spot because the plunder is his fair and square. But if he keeps it, The king of Sodom is going to think that he gave it all to Abram. I I, I let Abram keep the spoils, you know. Yeah, I mean, look, he's really rich, but, you know, like, I let him do that. I'm the one who made him rich. He's going to tell that story. He's going to take credit. The king of Sodom is going to take credit. He's going to take glory for himself 
for what actually was Abram's victory and no, actually was God's victory. Do you see that? See what's so sinister here in this subtle little twisting of words, the king of Sodom is trying to step into the place of God and take credit for what actually God gets the credit for. So what's Abram going to do? Well, we find out right away. He's not going to let this happen. He's not going to let Sodom get away with his little delusion that he made Abram rich. So verses 22 to 24, we see Sodom's offer rejected. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. See how he's, he's, he's using Melchizedek's language there? That I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is, that is yours, lest you should say I've made Abram rich. Uh, this probably offended the king of Sodom. Just, just kind of side note, and he's not too worried about that. Um, Abram knows that God's the owner of everything. He's telling Sodom this. He's king of Sodom. No, God, God's the possessor of heaven and earth. This isn't your stuff. This isn't my stuff. This is his stuff. But I'm not going to keep it because you're going to think you gave it to me, and I'm not going to let you think that. I'm not going to let you think that this is actually yours. I'm not going to let you think you made me rich. I think we just need to pause for a moment and reflect that this is one of those moments where someone with lesser faith, I think, would have waffled here. I mean, think of all that stuff. Have you, have you ever lied awake and wondered, like, hmm, what, what would I do with a million dollars? Well, Abram just won the lottery. And this is where Christians, people who call themselves Christians, people with not strong character often start to rationalize. Oh, I mean, if I keep all this stuff, I mean, I'm going to be even more powerful. God promised me this land, didn't he? He could start to justify and make excuses for keeping it all. Yeah, well, who cares what the king of Sodom thinks? You know, like, I'm just going to forget about him and walk away. Like, God wouldn't want me to waste all this plunder, would he? I mean, didn't he say he was going to bless me? If Abram keeps it, he knows he's going to be even more powerful. He's going to be able to negotiate and act like an even greater king. He's going to go from an outsider in Canaan to basically being the most potent political force in Canaan. What would you do in his spot? Isn't that a question to chew on? Abram doesn't bite the bait. He knows Sodom is a wicked place. He's not going to let Sodom carry on this delusion. He knows that if God wants to make him rich, God can make him rich in a cleaner, more upright way. And so Abram takes a different approach here. With, with Melchizedek, he accepted his gifts because Melchizedek gave glory to God. With Sodom, he's not going to do it. So he says no. Abram is remembering here too, like he didn't go to play political games. He went to rescue Lot. Mission accomplished. I don't need the stuff. I got Lot. And so he lets it go. Verse 24, I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshal, and Mamre take their share. Nothing for himself. It's interesting here, he doesn't mention what he gave to Melchizedek. And I'm not, I'm not totally sure what to make of that. Did he give to Melchizedek from his own personal stuff? Like, I'm, I'm not sure. It's a fair question. But the point is, he takes nothing for himself. 
This is incredible moral courage to say no to an opportunity like this. Incredible moral courage. And it comes from faith that God's going to keep his promises. And God is going to keep his promises in a way that won't share glory with the wicked king of Sodom. Faith, notice here, same as for last week. Once again, faith is leading Abram to risky obedience and risky generosity. Abram believes and Abram lets go. We should cheer at this moment. We should cheer. And so Abram ends up back where he started. We, we know from later on, he ends up back at the Oaks of Mamre. He's no richer. In fact, he might be less rich if he gave to Melchizedek out of his own personal supplies. He's no richer. He's no closer to inheriting the land. He's no closer to having a son. So how does this episode move forward, the story of Abram? Well, again, it's character development. Abram's demonstrated faith. He's expressed love. He's experienced God's help. He's received God's blessing. And Abram has taken several more important steps in the walk of faith. Now that right there is enough for us to learn from, that our, our lives are going to be wild and, and wandering as on the paths that they go on. But in all of it, God is doing something, is teaching us things. But we're going to look at three enduring truths from this passage as we wrap up here this morning. Three enduring truths that I, I think all of us will hopefully be able to take something from at least one of them as we consider what, what we can learn from today on our pilgrimages. The first has to do with Abram's love for Lot. We looked at this just a little bit ago. How many people in Abram's shoes would have said, well, guess Lot learned his lesson, not my problem. But not Abram. Abram goes to fight for Lot, even after Lot was selfish and took the best land for himself. And in so doing, what's Abram showing here? Abram is showing the character of God. God did not say to us, well, you made your own problem, uh, deal with it. No, rather, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the heart of God. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. And we are called to lay down our lives for each other, just as Jesus laid down his life for us. 1 John 3.16 now, it is true that there are times where showing love to someone means letting them experience the effects of, of their sin or their poor decisions. There are times where that's actually the most loving thing. An example would be what Paul says to the Thessalonians, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat, right? Second Thessalonians 3.10. So if someone's not willing to work, they should go hungry because that's actually going to teach them to work. But notice, notice that Paul had to tell that to the Thessalonians. He had to explicitly tell them, don't help those people out because the Thessalonians as Christians had an impulse to help. So do, do, do you see what I'm saying here? This is really important. Christians just do that as we represent and live out the heart of our father. We, we help, and we don't just say, ah, you, made, you got into that mess yourself. Guess it's your problem to fix. That might... Okay, I'm going to say it. That might be an important part of good politics, is saying it's not the government's job to fix your own personal mistakes. I know most of us here are all conservative in our politics, okay? That might be good politics, 
to say personal responsibility. It's not the government's job to fix your problems. But good politics is not always the same thing as good personal Christianity. And, and Christians following God, following Abram's example here, have an impulse to help people, to show mercy, even if they got into that mess themselves. There's another angle to this whole thing with Abram that I've been thinking about this week, and it has to do with the divisions and the separations that often come between the people of God. In, in, in the last chapter, Abram and Lot had to separate, just like Christians sometimes need to separate over doctrine or other divisions and differences. And those separations are painful and real, but those separations should never put an end to love. We should still be willing to stand up and fight for our brothers and sisters, even if we can't dwell together the way that we previously could. I was thinking this week about some of the friendships that I've been cultivating and, and, and continue to deliberately cultivate with Christians who see things very differently than I do. And we, we do this on purpose. Some of my best friends are people that I have major differences with in doctrine and practice. Now, we've got some core stuff that's shared, a commitment to scripture, a belief in the gospel. Okay, so I'm not talking about being wishy-washy on everything here. But... Um, I, I, what I'm saying is that some of the people that I have really good friendships with are people that I couldn't actually be members of the same church with and, and maybe not even be in the same denomination with. And, and I don't like that. Like, I, I long for Jesus to come and bid thou our sad divisions cease, like we sing at Christmas every year. But until then, despite those differences, as we wait for Jesus to come and fix them, what can we still do? We can love. We can love. And I would argue with, Fran like Francis Schaeffer argued years ago, that it's actually a greater display of love to show love to someone with whom you have really big differences. Just think, like, if all Christians thought all the same about every issue, would it be surprising that we showed love to each other? No, that's just, that's just everybody thinks, thinks the same way. But when two Christians have big differences in the way they think about an issue or the way they practice an issue, and if they say to each other, I think you're really wrong about this issue, but I'm going to love you anyways. Doesn't mean I'm going to compromise. Doesn't mean we're just going to water it all down, but we are going to love. Isn't that a powerful display of the Holy Spirit wrought love that Jesus said would show the world that we're his disciples? <laughs> And Abram here, his sacrificial love for Lot, he had to separate from Lot, but he still went and fought for him. I think this shows us quite a powerful statement about Christian love. Second big enduring truth here, Sodom or Salem. That's the title of this message here. Because Abram chose the blessing of Salem over the riches of Sodom. And you and I are going to have similar points in our lives where we're going to have to make a similar choice. We, in our lives, and, and together as the people of God, will have times that we're going to have to choose between earthly success and God's approval, between money and holiness, between gaining the world or keeping our souls. And in my short lifetime, I have seen so many people fail at this point. I have seen success ruin way more Christians 
than anything else because you get a little bit of worldly success and you get these offers made to you that ask you to compromise on things and people start saying, oh, well, you know, God wouldn't want me to turn down an opportunity like this, would he? I mean, this is a blessing, you know, to have this platform. And so, yeah, I mean, we'll have to just stop talking about Jesus for a few minutes, but still, like, God wouldn't want me to say no to this or, you know, whatever it is. And we compromise. It's the allure of stuff or success. And it leads many Christians to make a deal with the devil while they try to convince themselves they're actually experiencing God's blessing. Now, most of us in this room are, are, are not going to be in the spot that Abram was in, you know, where we're like negotiating with kings over big stashes of plunder. I mean, if you ever do get into that spot, like take some pictures. I'd love to, I'd love to see. But don't we need to watch out for the smaller forms of compromise that nip at our heels? Maybe it's, you know, not, rep- not reporting all the things on your taxes. Or maybe it's, you know, sharing your Netflix password, even though you're not supposed to. Because, well, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Little forms of compromise. Maybe it's picking up a new job or a new hobby that's going to keep you away from being with God's people. But, you know, God wouldn't really want you to miss out on that opportunity, would he? If, if we don't fight compromise on the little things... What makes us think we will have the courage to show integrity when the big choices confront us, like the king of Sodom offering us all of his stuff? So the question before us needs to always be Sodom or Salem. Do we want the blessings of God or the riches of man? Third point here this morning, our great high priest. We're going to end here with Melchizedek which we don't have near enough time to spend on Melchizedek. There's, in your study guide here this week, is one of the things is to read all of Hebrews chapter 7, which is all about Melchizedek. And it's just, it's just amazing. Melchizedek, a mysterious figure, shows up out of nowhere, disappears just as soon. The next time, though, he's mentioned in the Bible, Psalm 110, David, as a prophet, foresees God speaking to one of David's sons, saying, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay? Now, David was from the tribe of what? Judah. They were not priests. The priests were Levites from from Aaron, after the order of Aaron. And yet David is seeing a way that one of his offspring could be a priest, not after the order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, the Aaronic priests, the Levitical priests, weren't the only line of priests. Long before they were around, there was a priest of Melchizedek, and David is going to have a son who is going to be a priest in that order. And we know his name. It's Jesus. That's the son who is our today, our great high priest. Not in the, after the order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek. And, and that is such a, a, a potent truth for your soul this morning, whether you know it or not. Do you know that you need a high priest this morning? If, you, if your answer is no, that doesn't change the fact that you do. You need someone to represent you to the Father. Or else you, you have, you'd have no hope. You'd have no hope to represent yourself on your own before God, to, to say whatever and to try to cover up your sin. You, you, you'd be hopeless without a high priest. And so it's really important that we have a high priest. And it's mega important because there's no priests of Aaron around. There's no priests offering bulls and goats at an altar in Jerusalem. So what are we going to do to have an ongoing, peaceful relationship with the creator of the universe? The answer is you need a high priest to represent you. You need that more than you need anything else. And you've got one. Hebrews 6, 19 to 20. We have this. 
as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Does your soul need an anchor this morning? Here it is. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a great high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so you might wonder, where is, where is Jesus today? He's representing his people in heaven as a high priest. That's what he's doing. And so as we said this morning, as we celebrated the Lord's Supper, it's not about you. It's not about whether you've been good enough or bad enough. It's about the fact that there is a perfect, holy, spotless high priest who represents you in heaven. And you cannot be separated from the love of God any more than Jesus can get kicked out of heaven. It's not possible. It's not possible for your sins to accuse you and to separate you from God any more than it's possible for Jesus to get kicked out of heaven. And so that's why it's such an anchor for our souls because we feel good and we feel bad and we feel good and we feel bad and the anchor is that we've got a high priest representing us before the Father. We are safe. We are secure. We are saved. And so that's why we're going to end this morning by singing before the throne of God above. I have a strong and perfect plea. This is a song about our Melchizedekian high priest, Jesus. You see why this is relevant? This stuff is so relevant. This is our only hope. And it's a hope that has been given to us in Christ. So I don't know what's ahead of you this week. I don't know whether this week, you don't know whether this week is going to contain joys or sorrows. But I do know this. You need a high priest this week. And I do know this. In Christ, you have one. And maybe for the first time this morning, you want to reach out to him by faith and receive what he bought and paid for to give to his people. Or maybe this morning is a time for you to once again rest and say, Jesus, let me go into this week with my eyes fixed on you because whatever's coming, that's what I need the most. So I'm going to pray and then right away the team's going to come up and we're just going to sing to celebrate our Melchizedekian high priest at the right hand of God through whom we are saved and through whom we are safe now and for eternity. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for Abram's love for Lot. Thank you that he chose the blessings of the king of Salem over the riches of the king of Sodom. And thank you, Lord God, for our high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Ancient truths that are so real for our souls right now. Whatever's ahead of us, Lord, this week, don't let us forget that we have a high priest, that we're safe, and that we're saved. And I ask this, Jesus, for your sake. Amen.